I'm Tim Gompis, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. This episode kicks off season four of this here podcast, and I talk a little bit about what I've been up to over the last three and a half months and where I'm headed in this new season. So I'm standing here in my kitchen on a beautiful summer day. It's July 18th, and um, I'm a little bit out of practice in doing this. I had fully intended to just take a few weeks off after the conclusion of season three of this podcast and uh, to get started on something new, uh, but two weeks turned into three, three weeks turned into two months, two months turned into three and a half months, and uh, I have fully enjoyed the time off. It's been wonderful, um, but now I'm ready to get back to it and to start on a new adventure. A big thank you to so many of the people that have continued to email me and keep in touch. And uh, one of the things, one of my goals in doing this podcast was to generate conversation partners over just a variety of topics because um, I need conversation partners to um, sort of stimulate my own thinking and to uh, force me to to dig into issues and thoughts and conceptions, uh, cultural and theological and, and whatever else, to, di- to dig into all that more fully and deeply. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, people have continued to correspond. And um, for whoever was wondering whether I had died or something awful had happened, nope, I'm still here. It just took some time off. And I uh, was very happy to do that. Um, I've had a lot of fun over the last three and a half months. And one of the reasons why I have always said that I do this podcast for me is that um, it has to be done for me out of fun, not out of obligation. And I, I've, I wanted it to never be sort of a, uh, um, a lord or a, just a chore. That, um, that would be miserable for me, and I, I just wouldn't have any fun doing it. And yeah, Um the motivation of doing it for love and fun and to sort of um, posture myself alongside of others and generate good conversation, that is the motivation or those are the motivations that are really important to me. Um, but anyway, I'm happy to get back to it. Over the last three and a half months, I've been doing loads of travel. Been, uh, been down to visit my friend Steve in Kentucky a bunch, just hanging out with him, goofing around. Um, been speaking quite a bit in churches, just in various places, had a blast with the Vox community in Southern California, and also was out, uh, at Redemption in Orange County a few times. All of these people are just awesome. And each time I, I felt super energized and just had a blast talking with, um, some people who are doing, who are sort of, um, embodying being the people of God in the world in some creative ways that uh, I, I felt were um, really inspiring and really cool. One of the dynamics of uh, of capitalism and, and one of the results of how capitalism has overtaken, um, well, in my opinion, evangelicalism and its various manifestations is all the creation of capitalism. 
and capitalism just flattens out everything, just eliminates all particularities and, you know, churches become cookie cutters and cookie cutter sort of products of, you know, music production companies and a bunch of pub- publishing, you know, companies that want uh, to sort of um, homogenize everything. Capitalism has a homogenizing dynamic. And so it was really cool to see some churches um, that are that are doing things creatively all with the all with the goal of fostering the flourishing of the people that are part of those churches. So with Vox and Redemption, I was genuinely inspired. Um, back in May, we traveled to Seattle for a, uh, about four or five days to see our our two sons, which was awesome. They are two of the three most amazing humans in the world. Had an absolute blast out there, just hanging out, catching up, lots of good conversation. Uh, in early June, I road tripped to Virginia to see my college roommate Lance and his family, and um, had, had a wonderful time with them. Also got to see my sister who lives nearby, one of my sisters, and uh, played golf a couple days with my brother-in-law. And on the way down there, stopped in Ohio to see my friend Don. So a lot of driving, a lot of miles, a lot of flying, and loads of fun. I've just had the best time uh, since the beginning of April. Um, in fact, I'm just back from, what's today, the 18th got back on the 14th. I'm recording this on Monday. Steve and I returned on um, last Thursday. We spent about 10 days in England, um, about four or five days in Oxford, and then four or five days in Cambridge. And we went there really for no reason. Back in March, when I was down there in Kentucky with him, we were hanging out and he was like, let's go to England. And I was like, yeah, let's go. So right away, we booked tickets and just went just doing it. And uh, we had such a good time. We both have, we're both sort of Anglophiles. And um, years ago, back in 2008, Steve had a ministry sabbatical uh, for about five weeks in Oxford. And that was a really pivotal time in, in his life narrative. I went and visited him there for about eight days back then. And just, and that, just that short period of time was actually really critical um, in the development of change and transformation in me. Then about six years ago, I had an extended sabbatical and spent five weeks in Cambridge. And so those two cities in England mean a lot to us. And we didn't do, well, I was going to say we didn't really do anything, but that's not true. We did stuff that was significant to us. Took a lot of walks in beautiful places ate a ton of good food. My main goal was to have a cooked English breakfast every morning, which is one of my favorite breakfasts in the world. Aside from the breakfast burrito at Great White in Venice, California. That's probably my favorite. Well, this is a toss up. All right, I'm going to spend the rest of the evening thinking about which was which breakfast actually occupies the top spot in my mind. But anyway, we went to a variety of places in Oxford and Cambridge uh, for a full English breakfast. Loved it. Took a lot of walks, um, sat in pubs and watched Wimbledon matches, 
and just hung out, watched movies, and um, pretty much never stopped talking about just about everything under the sun, which is typical of, of how Steve and I hang out. He's so grateful for him being um, a lifelong conversation partner. We've enjoyed um, 25 years of friendship and our the sort of arc of our transformation, our transformations has tracked and it's been great to have somebody to, to dialogue with um, that you know is fully committed to you and that you are uh, to whom you are fully committed. So I'm just back sort of savoring the time that, that we had together. Um, as far as what's next for me, I've talked a bit about how this year is a, a year of transition for me. And it is the case that some things are clear and some things are not terribly clear. For this fall semester, I'm going to be teaching um, as an adjunct. I'm teaching a course and supervising some research students at Calvin Theological Seminary. And then um, I've also uh, taken a position as an affiliate professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. And um, I'll be interested to see how these two opportunities develop. Um, I've enjoyed the last year being more involved at my uh, local church because I had more time at Grace Episcopal Church, and that's been wonderful. I was able to preach there about three weeks ago. and um, But beyond that, things are still taking shape for me in my life, and I, I feel good about it. Um, I think that for some people, some personality types, they need clarity. I need to know what's next. I have to, you know, I, I don't do well with uncertainty. That's not really the case for me. This is a time of uncertainty in my life, and uh, it's been a good season for me to, um, to evaluate what's important to me, to let go of some things, to let go of um, the certitude of having um, an established job, and to have the um, you know the prestige of having a full time position in academia, I don't know exactly what comes next, but I'm happy with where I am as a person beloved by God, uh, alive, who's 50 years old and doesn't know exactly where where it goes from here. This is not where I imagined myself, um, but so many things are wonderful in my life, and things are still taking shape, and that's just okay. As I look out the uh, my kitchen window here, I see the W flag flying because the Cubs won last night. And what I know for sure is that flag is going to be flying for like another four days. That's right. It's the All-Star break. That's not because I'm assured that the Cubs are going to be uh, winning the next four games. Um, we have, uh, we're at the all-star break. There's a bunch of days off before the next, um, before the regular season resumes. And I just have to say the Cubs are simply awful this year. There's nothing really great to say. There's a couple of young players that are exciting to watch. Um, but the hitting is just not there. The pitching is not fantastic. There was a, a series that they had against the Yankees about six weeks ago in which um, they were outscored something like, it was a four-game series, and I don't even know what the total run scored was, but it was probably something like 75 to 10. It was unbelievable. 
they've had more than one series uh, where you know a position player has to pitch because you know it, things are at such a blowout status that it's like you know the manager of the Cubs is like, well, why why burn a pitcher's arm? Let's just throw some guy up there and see what he can do. So sort of a laughable season, but just how it goes. My friend Andrew and I went out to a uh, a double A game. No, sorry, a single A game. The um, the West Michigan Whitecaps, the single A team of the Detroit Tigers, um, plays here in town, and so we went out and enjoyed a game the other day, which was a so great. There's nothing like live summer baseball, and especially a minor league game where um, just all the sights and sounds are so vivid, and you're right there on top of the action. That was a blast. Actually, back in uh, June, when I was visiting Steve, we went up to Cincinnati from his place and um, hit a Reds game, which was really fun. Um, it is staggering to see live, a live single-A game and then a major league game, and to, just to see the skill level. Major league players are just so refined in in every way. It's just incredible. So it's like, to make a mistake in a game, like the, the official box score registers that, the number of errors a team makes. And it's incredible that a, a whole game can go on and a team have either no errors or one or two errors. Go to a minor league game and there are errors left and right because players are still being developed and they're still developing their instincts and their skills. So just a reminder, if you ever watch um, professional sports and think that you can get out there and do what they do, uh, that is an illusion. I'll just say that. Had a good time over the last four days watching bits of the Open Championship, which concluded yesterday in St. Andrews, Scotland. Um, played over the old course. It was the 150th championship. And... Uh, which is the oldest championship in the world, the, old, the oldest golf championship in the world, played on the place where golf was invented, the home of golf in St. Andrews, Scotland. And um, it's, it's wild to see um, what happens on a Lynx course when the weather is mild. Um, it, it wasn't terribly windy. The conditions were very, very dry. And when it's like that, the players just absolutely devour the course. And it was a really striking example of how modern equipment just overpowers these older courses. Uh, when the wind blows, well, I'll just say it this way. Um, Scottish Lynx courses are designed with the assumption that the main uh, challenge that you're going to have is wind. So if there's no wind, they're not so much of a challenge. I mean, there's, there, there are still difficulties, but play, uh, professional players can just shoot such low scores, which... Um, Cam, uh, what's his name? It's escaping, it's escaping me now. The Australian who won, uh, yesterday shot a 64 in the final round, which is just incredible. Um, I went to the open championship when I lived in St. Andrews back in the early two thousands, I went to the 2002 championship when it was played at Muirfield, which is just to the South, um, outside of Edinburgh. And, I think on the second day of that championship, the wind was howling. And uh, I remember Tiger Woods, I think, shot an 80 that day. And um, players felt the full force of a Lynx course defense, which makes 
playing Lynx golf just so much more of a challenge. Um, but that was a fun, it was fun to watch that. And it was really interesting. This was supposed to be in some ways leading into the fourth round. This was kind of supposed to be the, uh, the coronation of Rory McIlroy. He was going to, you know, after, uh, winning four majors early in his career, it's been eight years since he's won a major championship. And the assumption was he's going to, he started with a lead and he is going to just march to victory. And over the first nine holes, he was playing so well and he had a lead. But I think that he was sort of focused on his playing partner who was completely falling apart. And so he was, he played comfortably. He didn't, he didn't play badly, but he played well. But what he didn't realize is there's another player, um, a hole ahead of him in, in, in the group ahead of him that absolutely had the pedal to the metal and was putting lights out and ended up winning the championship. Um, I've thought about him, listened to talk about him all day on sports radio, and his name is now escaping me, which is just ridiculous. 50 years old, nothing sticks. Uh, Recently saw the film Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I completely loved. And I can hardly wait to see it again. It is absolutely brilliant and so well done. It is, it is at once um, thoroughly philosophically complex and, co- and coherent. Um, at the same time, it's absolutely bananas and just completely nutso. Um, but it's just brilliant. And it is so humane. So very interesting, and, and the the human relationships are also highly complex, and that's one that I'm going to want to watch a number of times and sort of chew on, pull apart, examine, reflect on, and all that sort of thing. Also, recently, um, I think Saturday, I began rewatching Ted Lasso, which is just the absolute sweetest show, and all about the beauty and the grittiness of life, the the beauty and tragedy of life and of relationships, um, but also the beauty and the grittiness and the reality of kindness and compassion. I love how the show portrays uh, kindness as something that isn't flippant or easy, and it it is completely unsentimental in its portrayal of relationships, Um, but it's also beautiful and it's so hopeful. So um, just turned that on the other day and, and blew through season one and um, about two episodes into season two. And it's every bit as wonderful and beautiful as I remember. Uh, on the national scene here in the United States, um, things are continuing to be pretty frightening. The heat keeps being turned up um, in our our politics, and in a way that, to me, remains downright scary. Most of us who grew up in America, we learn about the American Civil War, and we learn about it in very romanticized ways, and that that takes a variety of forms, depending on on where you're from in the United States. Um, But I think it's important to remember, if you are an American person, that this country fought a civil war. Like there has been blood shed, like full on warfare, not only the Revolutionary War and you know the War of 1812. I mean, these are 
wars fought on this land and wars sort of fought for um, over the issues of control, over the issues of capital, you know, money, dominance, and the Civil War is directly consistent with that. The Civil War in many ways in America is also the product of capitalism. There was a war fought on this land over whether um, enslaved African people could be owned as property, as capital, as, as free labor, whether they could be owned by white European uh, descendants on this land um, to produce you know, the world's most robust economy. And um, yeah, families were split. Um, slaughter was just unbelievable. I just, I just keep that in mind. That is, that is not too far in the distant past. And so many of the dynamics that we see up and running in the American, on, the, on the American political scene are directly consistent with everything ha that happened in the Civil War, the American Civil War. And I mean, now that I'm thinking of it, just as proof of that on the surface level, uh, so many of the insurrectionists from January 6th, uh, what was it, 2021? So many of them were carrying Confederate battle flags because they saw themselves as consistent with the Confederate effort to establish a new country, um, one in which it was legal and approved of to own enslaved Africans as free labor. Um, the reason why I say that that was the product of capitalism is that's one of the dynamics of capitalism capital so global capital that is just moneyed interests scours the globe and is is on the lookout for the cheapest labor possible to bring about the greatest profit possible and there is no concern another dynamic of capitalism is uh sort of a a distancing of the people who have the capital the people who possess the capital and the labor so you could have capital interests, say, in Britain, and the labor being uh, the labor that's producing goods is somewhere in China. Well, because you have the rem you have the dynamic of investment in cheap labor being at a remove. That is, these are people that never see each other. There's no concern for how those people over there are treated. So capitalism just destroys human bodies. It just there's no concern at all for humane treatment um, of other people. There's no concern for human flourishing. There's only a concern for increased profits. That is the ultimate goal. And the American Civil War was all about that. Or I should say American slavery was all about that. Free labor to produce goods, to increase profits. And if that results in the, the degradation and the murder and the rape and uh, uh, of enslaved African people and the breaking up of families, the tearing apart of uh, mother and child, um, husband and wife. If that happens, that's fine because what matters is profit. Um, and those dynamics of capitalism continue um, in a variety of forms in the United States with uh, the tolerance of various numbers of illegal immigrants making sure that they don't have any rights actually, but making sure that they're here, 
so that capital interests can have access to cheap labor. So there's all kinds of fraught and complex motivations going on, even as we think about immigration. But the, the dynamic of capitalism remains the desire for cheap labor and the plundering of human life. Um, anyway, we can go on and talk about that for some time. Uh, but just to say, I think it's important for all Americans to keep in mind that in the not too distant past, there was a civil war on this land, all out civil war and desire for destruction. And um, it is pretty frightening for me to witness, you know, like the January 6th hearings and to see um, over the last, I think this has been really probably over the last 25 years, maybe 30 years. Yeah. Since the Republican revolution, I think in 1994 with Newt Gingrich, things have sort of been turned up a notch in um, sort of the madness and the passion with which Republicans have just uh, this naked and bald pursuit of power at any cost. And the Republican party has become, this is not to say anything good about the democratic party. It's just that the democratic party is not questing after authoritarianism the way that the Republican party is. Um, the Republican party and its president, the, it's pre, the, the previous president of this country were planning and executing an insurrection an overthrow of the government. And what's incredible is to see all this laid out and even to have watched it like in real time, to have watched all this happen and then to watch these hearings and, and to kind of just know there are going to be no consequences brought to bear. And this is going to be allowed uh, to continue to foment. Um, the Republican Party is at the state level and at the national level is rolling back civil rights for women and for people of color. And um, things, things are just broken in a profound way. And to my mind, I think we are headed into some very dark times in this nation. And um, I don't see much that is hopeful, much that is hopeful at all um, when it comes to thinking about the United States of America. I am a... Uh, I'm a white male, upper middle class white male. And so for me, I think it's the easiest for someone like me to believe in all the hype and hope and promise of America, which is all just BS. All the stuff that I was raised with that trained me to see um, hope in America and to see America as the sort of the great hope of the earth. Um, People like me are the most susceptible to believing that, but there are other people in this country that have sort of a, that, that, that come within a tradition or, oh, it, it just came to me. Cam Smith is the golfer's name from Australia, the winner of the Open Championship. There are other people in this country, namely African-American people, um, who know that the, the promise of America is is a lie, is an, is an illusion. And um, it's, been, it's been a real journey for me to read as much critical history as I can, to read as much social commentary as possible, to read social commentary from uh, people who are at the margins of our culture, and to sort of uh, pull away 
those lenses that I inherited um, to see all this kind of optimism in America. I think things are coming apart. And I would highly recommend Sarah Kinzier's essay, which is called We Are Headed Into Dark Times. You could just search for her name, K-E-N-D-Z-I-O-R, Sarah Kenzier. And the essay is called We Are Headed Into Dark Times. Um, she is a, she's a PhD. She's an anthropologist who studies the rise of authoritarian states, especially in Europe and in, in uh, Eastern Europe. And she sees all the same dynamics that she has studied for years. All those same dynamics are happening here in America. And especially um, a number of interests over the last 45 to 50 years have more or less taken over fully the Republican Party and um, are kind of generating all of these sorts of dynamics. It's really crazy. But as a confessing Christian, I have hope in the reality of the kingdom of God, and I do not have any hope in any human creation whatsoever. And this place that we have all agreed to call the United States of America is a human fiction. It's a creation um, of humans, and there's no reason to hope in it whatsoever. And it is, things are going to get bad. I don't want to be too much of a downer, but I don't see much cause for hope. Uh, I'm currently reading a book along these lines to sort of further um, darken the mood here. I think it's fascinating, though. Reading a book by a scholar named Jamie Martin, and it's called The Meddlers, which is um, it's one of a number of works that I've read over the last few years that demonstrates that the, the entire world is held in captivity to capitalism, and that that is a far greater threat than either the Republican or the Democratic Party being in power. I mean, it's, it's just like there is a lockdown across the entire globe of the dynamics of capitalism, which, um, if you read uh, Pankaj Mishra's book, inevitably gives rise to authoritarian leaders. And we're seeing authoritarian leaders um, arise around the world, which is, again, part of this frightening scenario. But in this book, it's really interesting. He traces uh, the rise of all these kind of transnational organizations that really run the world, um, like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and a number of other entities, and um, ties that back to uh, efforts by the Allies to create supply lines during World War I, which is just a fascinating history. I always find it just so helpful to understand where did these dynamics come from? How did they develop? Because that sort of can give us a better handle on understanding the current state of play. But um, I know this all sounds pretty dark, but for me, I would rather know the truth about reality than maintain any illusions. Um, Steve was saying this the other day, uh, you know, there's not necessarily bad people, but people can be stuck in bad narratives. And I have found that, I mean, Steve and I have talked about this for years. All of us, as we are enculturated, we grew up in our families and we're taught these things in school and all the cultural messaging that we receive. We are the inheritors of all these narratives that are largely illusory. That is, they're, they're just not true. And those false narratives um, about what will be hopeful and promising for me in my future and things will all work out. 
those things are the source of so much of the pain that is brought into our lives. And so I find that it, it's far more promising to be a relentless, sorry, a relentless truth seeker and a relentless truth speaker and to insist on not being bamboozled. Um, and along those lines, it just seems that the problems of this country and the global order oriented by capitalism are in many ways beyond fixing. But I'd rather say that and note it so that I can plan accordingly. I don't want to have any false hopes. There have been enough of those that have done damage to me and people that I love that um, I want to know the truth. Goodness. Along the same line, uh, last month it was big news and is going to continue to be huge news um, or hugely um, important, a hugely important event that will have lasting ramifications in this country and even around the world. But the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which was the case in the early 70s that legalized abortion in America. And the overturning of that was a cause of celebration for many conservative white Christians, uh, both evangelical and Roman Catholic. And I've talked about this before. I did an episode in, I believe, March of 2020 on abortion politics. Um, it is so important to my mind to grasp the larger history of abortion in America and how that issue was basically manufactured by a bunch of entities who are seeking power and corporate entities um, who are seeking to roll back the progress of civil rights and um, the importance of labor unions in America. They wanted to dismantle that whole structure that ensured the fair treatment of everyone in this country. And as part of rolling back those civil rights in the middle part, uh, sorry, the, the civil rights that were established in the middle part of the, the 20th century, Sometime around 1970, a bunch of these entities um, decided that the way that they would roll these back is to gain control of the, judi uh, the judiciary, the federal um, court system. And in order to ensure that they were able to appoint judges over the decades to come, they, there was the manufacture of the importance of this issue of abortion. And in order to sort of... Um, gather together uh, a voting block of evangelical Christian people. There was a sort of an educational effort that lasted decades, and many, many people who are evangelical are the product of that. Um, most people who, who are passionate about um, anti-abortion efforts, you are the product of a corporate effort uh, to educate your mind and to incite your passions to be, quote-unquote, pro-life. And um, which I often think is pro unborn people without any concern for born people. Um, anyway, there was an effort that was uh, undertaken to sort of build a, and, and to ensure a voting block of conservative um, political figures who would then appoint federal judges and uh, there was a long-term strategy to overtake the federal judiciary, and it worked, and it has worked. And the ultimate goal of evangelicals was to overturn Roe v. Wade, but that sort of short-term goal is wrapped up in the larger goal of 
corporate interests to ensure that our government makes no laws regarding protection of the world, of, of uh, nature, of God's good creation, and does nothing to prevent climate change, and does nothing to prevent people who are vulnerable, um, disabled people, um, black people, people of color, immigrants. The only thing that they're interested in doing is, is protecting the rights of capital and corporations and the wealthy. And it's, it's a tragedy to me to see that this is an issue over which there is so much passion, um, which is highly dangerous. The framers of the Constitution were worried about passions in the populace, and they designed the system of government to ensure that passion didn't rule. So when we have passions stirred up, we shouldn't think, oh, so-and-so really believes in their convictions. We should see danger. And a number of Greek thinkers leading up to the time of the New Testament were very worried about passion. And New Testament writers are very concerned about passion. Paul writes about this in Romans. Um, and so to be passionate when it comes to politics is highly dangerous, which is not so when it comes to how many Christians feel or how they envision passion. Like that's, that's something good. That's something to be stirred up within us. It's noble, but it's actually highly dangerous. There is nothing good about it. And it's also tragic to me uh, to see that um, the hijacking of white evangelicals in America has actually sort of proved successful. It, it wasn't successful in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It was successful back in the, the late 70s and the early 1980s when um, evangelicals in America became a politicized people or um, a partisan politicized people. That That's when the tragedy occurred. And I think with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we've just seen the full flowering of it. So it's been a tragedy to my mind all along. I wrote about this back in, I guess my book came out in 2010, my book, The Drama of Ephesians, when I talked about um, how evangelicals have been seduced by partisan political figures. And that is something that has happened predating the 70s. Uh, Billy Graham was uh, seduced into supporting various political figures as far back as the, the 40s. So evangelicals in America, white, sorry, white evangelicals in America have always loved political power. And that is a tragedy from the start. That is a surrender of the politics of Jesus. Um, as part of that whole thing, the way that I see this, the overturning of Roe v. Wade anyway, is that so much of the energy that drives the anti-abortion movement is supplied by patriarchy. That is the desire of men to control female bodies. And um, I know that the overturning of Roe v. Wade has signaled to, to many women throughout this country and throughout the world that this is a dangerous time to be a woman. And um, if you're a human being who wants to have solidarity with other human beings, um, that should frighten us. Vulnerable people are worried about what is going to happen to their bodies. And there are people who have sought political power so that they can determine what happens with other people's bodies. That is, that's a frightening situation. Anyway, there's so much more to say about 
all of that. Um, you can check out my podcast episode uh, from March 2021 called Abortion Politics. Um, but to me, this is nothing to celebrate at all. In fact, far from it. There's been a bunch of books that I've been reading over the last couple of months. I wrote down a couple that are significant for me. Um, I recently reread The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. This is just an absolutely brilliant book. Um, so interesting to see all these dynamics sort of unfold with the um, with the sort of undermining. In, in fact, not only the ignoring of expert opinion, but resentment among many people at the very fact of expertise. When someone is an expert in a certain topic, that makes some people angry. They're offended. And it's so interesting to me how these sort of passions are aroused. And he wrote this before, I think it was in 2018. And what's interesting is he had quite a bit to say about the anti-vax movement before the anti-COVID vax movement really took off and went nuts. It's very, very interesting to sort of um, to read his discussions about all of that. People will more readily trust celebrities than they will trust people who are who have expertise in a certain topic, which is completely bananas. Nobody gets on an airplane and uh, insists that the pilot have no training. Nobody gets on an airplane and insists that the plane be flown by a celebrity. I want to know that my pilot has been trained, that he's logged all of his hours. Um, I feel far more insured about my safety. If that's the case, I don't care um, if the pilot has been on the cover of Bazaar Magazine or whatever. I also read most of The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow. Uh, my son Riley recommended this to me, and I found it fascinating in many places. I, I'd read some reviews of it, and it, they were all very positive. It's really a very interesting book where two, um, an anthropologist and an archaeologist, uh, sort of um, kind of lift up their heads and gaze over the, the findings of um, of their field in general over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years. And they revisit some of the assumptions that, un that, that lie beneath so much of how we typically conceive of the, the development of early humans. And it was so interesting. But man, it's, it's a big, thick book. And I, it just bogged down after a while. So I took a couple of nuggets away from it. But I'm just taking this as a sign um, of my relative lack of of intelligence. I couldn't stick with it. Other stuff got my attention. Um, namely, the book that I bought along with The Dawn of Everything. And that is, that is a book that was an absolute delight to read. And it was Mel Brooks, uh, Mel Brooks's memoir, All About Me, by, of course, Mel Brooks. And I've always been a fan of his going back to the time that I was in high school. And um, I've always loved Jewish comics. And it's so interesting to learn more about the history of Jewish comics and Jewish comedy in America, stretching back to, you know, the late 30s, early 40s. And it was fun to just read about Mel Brooks's time on your show of shows with Sid Caesar. When I was growing up, my mom loved your show of shows with Sid Caesar. And 
he was an absolute comic genius. You can, if you just search online for some of his skits, uh, I didn't know that Mel Brooks was a writer on that show for some time. It's interesting because decades later in, I believe the 70s and 80s, uh, Sid Caesar, long after he had um, sort of retired or kind of hit the peak of his career, Mel Brooks had him in some of his films. Anyway, uh, you can still check out some of his skits online. They're they're still hilarious. But I really enjoyed that book and the stories behind like Blazing Saddles and the producers and all of that. And um, Mel Brooks just seems like one of the most humane people in show business. And to read about um, his really serious thinking about producing comedies was just so interesting. Just really, really, really enjoyed that. So looking ahead to uh, season four of Faith Improvised, I've had a number of people that have written to me and asked me to talk about you know, how to study the Bible, how to engage with scripture. And I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to jump into that for this, for this whole season. I, I've taught for the, uh, the 10 years that I taught at the seminary at which I formerly did teach, I routinely, once a year, um, and sometimes twice a year, sometimes three times a year, depending on the schedule, I taught a course on hermeneutics and uh, r- routinely taught it with my colleague, Jonathan Greer. And uh, so I've got a lot of material to, um, to talk about. And I think that I would like to provide some different frames, not merely studying the Bible, um, but somehow like reckoning with the Bible or reckoning with Scripture or using Scripture or thinking with Scripture or listening to Scripture. There's so much more and there's so much else to talk about aside from studying it. And I don't want to necessarily get down to talking about techniques. Um, That is certainly something that we do in modernism. We have techniques that give us an ensured interpretation. Um, I think I would like to talk about thinking with Scripture, how to think scripturally or to think along the lines of how Scripture portrays reality. And there's there's a lot of subtlety that goes into that. There's a variety of forms of literature in the Bible, and they all have to be dealt with differently. They all have to be kind of regarded differently. And when you understand what ancient texts are doing in their ancient contexts, their their cultural settings, um, Scripture begins to make really good sense. And it's often different than how modern readers would would, would conceive of it. To just have a Bible, this book in which there are just tons of words on pages, gives us the illusion that this is all just one straight message, you know, The Bible is a library of a, a variety of texts that all have to be sort of handled or um, interpreted differently or encountered differently or listened to appropriately. Um, so I think I'd like to talk about <clears throat> thinking with Scripture. Sort of like over the last couple of weeks when Steve and I spent this time in England just kind of goofing around and taking walks and, and talking In our many conversations, they were constantly peppered with lines from our favorite films, and we completely understood what the other was saying. 
it's not that we had studied those films, um, but we just knew them so well that our thoughts sort of ran along the lines of what was happening in those films that we were making reference to. And as we were recounting an episode in our lives or we were just kind of talking about something, um, a line from a certain film would come to mind and we would just say it and it would perfectly capture the moment that we were experiencing. And doing that and doing it well and making the other person laugh and appropriately capturing the moment requires deep knowledge of our own lives and it requires deep knowledge of one another's lives. And it requires deep knowledge and understanding of the unfolding story in the films that we're referring to. And then it requires skill in drawing analogies and resonances and capturing the perfect quote that just makes the situation that we're recounting come alive. And I see reckoning with Christian scripture to be something far more like that. It's not done with technique, but we get to know certain texts so well. Um, and then we sort of have to learn ourselves well. And then we have to understand our cultural placement now as thoroughly as we can. And then we can kind of see how the, the narrative dimensions of our own lives meet the narrative dimensions or the poetic dimensions um, of scripture to see how scripture interprets our lives for us, how scripture actually opens up reality and situates us within the life of the kingdom of God. So I'd like to talk about that sort of thing, about cultivating canonical wisdom, how to know the different parts of scripture and how to use them well, how to inhabit them well, how to invite them into our lives well. Um, so I don't know that I'm going to necessarily lay out a method, but I'd like to talk about the various dimensions of that uh, in this upcoming season. I think it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll certainly keep me engaged because that's what I do. This is, this is what I was trained to do. This is what I've done for years. And I, I always enjoy talking about doing what we're doing well. So that's it. I, what is this? Mid-July. My intention is to uh, produce episodes weekly, but I do have some travel coming up still. Um, our three kids are coming home for a visit in several weeks. And so there might be a week that there is no episode, but hopefully as I move into September, um, episodes will be produced week, uh, week in and week out. We'll see what happens. Anyway, I'm back at it. I've enjoyed my break and um, ready to get back to do to doing what I love. Mm -hmm.